Well, it is good to see you all again this morning. Uh, This morning, we come to yet another familiar passage in Scripture, and it's uh, one that's so familiar that the culture uh, has referenced it many, many times um, in in ways that might be related to or not related to this this classic parable of Jesus. Uh, Here are some of the ways. There there are many religious children's books uh, about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, But there's also a romance novel entitled The Good Samaritan. I don't know what that's about. There's a biography of a Catholic priest named John Kelly called The Quintessential Good Samaritan. There's a psychological crime novel entitled The Last Good Samaritan. And there's a book on helping relationships called Good Samaritan Therapy, just to name a, a few of the books that have inherited the name of the titular character in this parable. Beyond that, I don't know how this happened, but beyond that, there is a serial killer in Texas and Oklahoma back in the 1990s who was dubbed the Good Samaritan Killer. Um, There are laws in most states that protect passers-by from being sued if they inadvertently injure uh, someone that they've stopped to help, and those are called Good Samaritan laws. And last but not least, there are two episodes of my beloved Star Trek franchise, Uh, that are called Good Samaritan. And there are many real-life people who have acted in authentic ways to to mimic the actions of the Good Samaritan in the parable. One of the more famous ones is Oskar Schindler, who was a real person and uh, about whom was written a novel in 1982 entitled Schindler's Ark, which in 1993 was turned into a Steven Spielberg movie called Schindler's List. And if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, Oskar Schindler uh, was a member of the Nazi party in Germany, uh, and he was also an industrialist. He was a wealthy man. He opened a factory in Krakow, Poland, uh, after Germany occupied it in 1939 and staffed his factory with over 1,800 Polish workers, most of whom were Jews. And when the German SS began murdering Jews in Poland not long after, Schindler began to bribe the Germans to leave his employees alone, but he was doing that for admittedly selfish reasons. He he wanted to continue to have a workforce in a a place where there was a labor shortage. But as time goes on, Schindler begins to realize that what the Germans are doing is evil and that in protecting his employees, he's also protecting innocent lives. And so for the duration of the war, Schindler continues bribing the Germans to spare his employees from persecution. The bribes become more and more expensive, so by the end of the war, Schindler was bankrupt, but the lives of over 1,200 Jews were saved from Nazi persecution. And that's really the definition of a good Samaritan, not just someone who does good things, but someone who does sacrificial good to help an unanticipated beneficiary. That describes Oskar Schindler. He, a Nazi, gave away his entire fortune and put his life at risk numerous times to protect the lives of Jews under a Nazi occupation. It also describes the actions of the Samaritan man in the parable we look at today. He's a man who acts sacrificially in order to save the life of someone who was taught to hate and mistrust his race. And so let's read that parable now. If you have... Uh, your pew Bible, 
This is found on page 869. And if you are um, not using your pew Bible, it is in Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Lord, your word is perfect. It is inerrant. Uh, And Lord, we confess that it is also uh, uh, complex and deep and mysterious at times, Lord, we, we need your spirit to write it on our hearts that we would rightly understand it and that we would understand what you want us to learn from it. Lord, we want to be transformed as we engage with your word. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us during this time, that you would open our hearts and our minds to perceive uh, what your uh, will is for us to learn. Lord, I pray that you would perfect my words, which are weak uh, and which are uh, limited, and uh, that everyone here would hear you speaking as we go through this time of preaching. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And so we're going to look at this parable using three points, Uh, and Linda, my apologies, I I changed the points a little bit uh, after I sent them to you. So the first point is the lawyer's questions. Uh, because he asks more than one, so it's a plural, plural questions. Uh, the second point is Jesus' answer, and the third is Jesus' invitation to us, Jesus' invitation to us. And so the first point, the lawyer's questions. Just a quick note that the man who is identified as a lawyer in verses 25 and following probably isn't a lawyer in the modern sense. He's probably uh, a man who is learned, in, learned rather in the law, Uh, and uh, he was probably a teacher of the law. He could have been a scribe. He could have been a Pharisee. He could have been a Sadducee. 
uh, but he was not the kind of lawyer that we think of who goes and defends someone uh, in a court case. It's just a parenthetical note. Uh, Luke is, is very helpful in verse 25 in telling us what this lawyer's motivation was in coming to Jesus in the first place. Did you catch what it was? It says the lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. So like many others from the established Jewish religious culture that we read about in scripture, this man wants to be the one who asks Jesus a trick question and then, and then hopes that uh, Jesus gets tripped up trying to answer. In other words, he wants to take Jesus down. There's a 17th and 18th century uh, Presbyterian minister named Matthew Henry uh, who says this about the lawyer's questions. He says, this was a question disputed among critics of the law, referring to the, the question the lawyer asked. Some would have said uh, that following the law of circumcision uh, would bring eternal life, or others would say the law of the Sabbath, others would say the law of sacrifices. Now they uh, would try what Christ said to this question, hoping to incense the people against him, if he should not answer according to the popular opinion. And if he should magnify one commandment, they would reflect on him as vilifying the rest. And so, again, Matthew Henry is using uh, Old English, but what he's essentially saying is people who would try to put Jesus to the test like this were just trying to misuse his words uh, and take them out of context and then gossip about him and try to, to defame him by doing that. So what are the first of the two questions that this lawyer asks? He asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So talk about your big questions. And Jesus, Jesus responds to the lawyer's question with one of his own. He says, what's written in the law? Essentially, Jesus asks, you're the expert in the law. You tell me the answer to your own question." And so the lawyer responds with what is actually a pretty theologically astute answer for a Jew with access only to the Old Testament law. He, he says in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So why does the lawyer respond with, with this answer? I think that there are two possibilities. The first is the, the Ten Commandments, the foundation of the Old Testament law, are often thought to have been divided into two categories, each category on one of the two stone tablets uh, written on by God. The first tablet is thought to have contained commandments one through four, which all talk about what it means to love and honor and respect God. And the second tablet is thought to have contained commandments six through ten, which all cover loving and respecting and honoring other people. And so the lawyer's response might have been a summary statement of the two great themes of the, the foundation of Jewish law. But the two commands that the lawyer mentions are also two specific commands from Scripture. The first command the lawyer states about loving God is actually a paraphrase of the Shema, a, a quote from Deuteronomy 6.5 that many Jews would say aloud twice every day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And the second is a summary of Leviticus 19.18, which is actually a major theme of the Old Testament law and prophets. We don't often think about it that way. We think of the Old Testament as being 
full of judgment and accusations and commandments. Uh, but if you look at uh, the, especially the first five books of, the, of uh, the Bible and then all of the prophets, you see that God is intensely occupied uh, with us learning that loving one another is requisite for us to love him. He, he wants us to learn to love and tolerate and, and bless one another. And so the lawyer's answer is correct, at least in the context of his culture and the progress of the redemptive historical timeline up to that point. And so Jesus tells him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Well, that's great, Jesus. The only problem is you can't. The lawyer couldn't keep those two commandments any more than we can. And as a matter of fact, he was actively breaking them in trying to trip up Jesus. And it isn't just the lawyer's problem, as I, I mentioned a, a second ago, it's ours as well. Because of our sin nature, you and I are completely incapable of keeping these commandments. As hard as we might try to do the right thing, we, we frequently fail to do it. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in uh, Romans 7, verses 18 and 19, he says this, For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, that is what I keep on doing. Or to put it in the legendary words of my dear uh, daughter Mercer when she was five, year to five years old, I try to do good, but bad keeps coming out. <laughs> we'll get back to this issue of being unable to live out the two great commandments a bit later. But for right now, let's name and examine the lawyer's second question. And who is my neighbor? And just as he did for the lawyer's first question, Luke gives us insight into the lawyer's reason for asking this second question. He, he tells, tells us, rather, in verse 29, that the lawyer desired to justify himself. Perhaps rightly feeling as though Jesus had, had won round one in this verbal engagement, the lawyer throws the first punch to start round two. And that takes us to our second point, Jesus' answer. So Jesus knows what the lawyer's motivation is for both of his questions, and he uses the parable of the Good Samaritan to take what is meant for evil and turn it to good. And if you're not familiar with what the term parable means, uh, Jesus used parables to, to teach publicly and even sometimes privately. Um, and a parable is just a story that is set in the context of the, the original audience's uh, hearers. He, he, Jesus would talk about things that his original audience would be familiar with, and he uses common themes in order to communicate higher theological truths. And so when we talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, this isn't just a parable that tells us how to be nice to one another. This is a parable that teaches us something bigger and, and more glorious about God. So the story is one familiar to us, but I'll point out some of the, the things that make it so poignant. First, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous for travelers. The road wound around hills and valleys as it went downhill from Jerusalem, which is on a ridge, down to the valley that contains the Jordan River. 
And, you know, Jesus says that this man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's strange, if you look at a map of uh, Israel, you'll see that Jericho is actually northwest, I'm sorry, northeast of, uh, of Jerusalem. And so, you know, we often talk about going down to the shore because the shore is generally south of where we are, uh, or going down south. Um, uh, when Jesus says going down, he's actually talking about going from a high place. Jerusalem was, uh, was elevated relative to, uh, to Jericho, and this man is just going down uh, the side of a mountain. Additionally, there were caves in the hillsides that allowed robbers to remain hidden until it was too late for their victims to escape. So the same way that they warn you now to lock your, your car doors before driving through Philadelphia because of the risk of carjackings, the warnings two millennia ago on this road were probably to lock your donkey <laughs> and to get from one city to the next as quickly as possible. That's the first uh, insight. The second is the victim of this robbery in the parable is bypassed by two of his fellow Jews, a priest and a Levite, two men who should have shown mercy according to the, uh, the, Levit I can't say the, word, the Leviticus 19.18 command to love your neighbor that the lawyer pronounced moments earlier. Jesus makes the point that both men saw the victim lying on the side of the road and that they willfully crossed over to the other side to avoid him. So now you know the riddle, I'm sorry, the answer to the riddle, why did the priest and the Levite cross the road? It was to avoid the victim. And why did they want to avoid him? Well, there were some legitimate reasons. They, they might have assumed that the man was dead, and there was a prohibition in Jewish law against touching a dead body. If you touched a dead, a dead body, it made you ceremonially uh, unclean. You would have been unable to serve in the temple uh, for a period of seven days. Or they might have feared that the man was bait for them to become victims of, uh, of the robbers themselves. So for whatever reasons, the two men whom you would expect to have helped the victimized man walked right on by. Third, the person who does stop is a Samaritan. And just briefly, Samaritans and Jews generally didn't get along. Jews generally went out of their way to avoid Samaritans. And I'm guessing it was a reciprocal uh, hatred. There were a number of reasons for this, and if you want some biblical insight into some of the differences, you can read the account of Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. But basically, Samaria was a region to the north of Judah, where Jerusalem was, and to the south of Galilee, where Jesus was from. So it was in between those two Jewish regions. And it was populated with people whom the, the Jews considered to be half-breeds, uh, people who were Jewish but had generally been left behind during the exile 400 years earlier, and they intermarried with, uh, with Gentiles who lived in that region. And over the course of time, there were a series of religious differences between Jews and Samaritans as well, but suffice it to say that there was no love lost between these two groups. The very notion to a Jew of there being a good Samaritan would have been laughable. Samaritans weren't good. They were people that you avoided. They were people that weren't to be trusted. 
And yet this Samaritan not only goes over to the wounded man, but he treats his wounds, goes out of his way to find a place where the man can recover, and then essentially gives the innkeeper a blank check to take care of him and restore him to health. So why does Jesus choose a Samaritan as the hero for his parable? It's because to the audience of his day, a Samaritan would have been the absolutely last person you would have expected to stop and help a Jew who had been victimized by robbers. I think Jesus does this to demonstrate that the man in the parable who shows mercy is the one whom you would least expect to do so. In other words, the man who acts as neighbor is the one who has the least to gain from doing so. It's a fitting conclusion to the parable exposing the lawyer's pridefulness and and two-dimensional understanding of the law. And I mentioned a while ago that it was impossible for us to live out these two great commandments named by the lawyer earlier in the passage, to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And here, Jesus points out that the one who demonstrated love as neighbor was the one who had the least reason to and the one to whom the cost was the greatest. And that's because this isn't a parable about how we should love one another and find our way into the kingdom of God. It's a parable, rather, about how God loves us. To quote Pastor Kyle Connect from Liberty, who preached on this passage last week, he says, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not a story about how we should be good neighbors, but a story about how we need a good neighbor, and his name is Jesus. Unlike the lawyer, let's not fall into pridefulness and a two-dimensional understanding of grace, thinking that we're essentially good people, and Jesus just comes along and adds whatever extra we need in order to make it into the kingdom of God. That's not true. What is true is that you and I are the half-dead man on the side of the road. And actually, that's not even true. You and I are completely dead. Uh, The man who stops, the man who sees us, the man who gives life to our as good as dead bodies and souls is Jesus himself. Listen to what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. If you have a, a pew Bible, I invite you to turn there now and read along with me. Ephesians 2, beginning at the first verse, this is Paul describing what we were actually like. And he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think about that for a moment. Why would Jesus want to help us? What good is a dead body? What good is a dead soul? We can't repay him. We can't be worthy of his love for us. And according to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, we can't even stumble around trying to keep the two great commandments imperfectly without God's help. Why Jesus would want to help us is the mystery of grace. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. We can't explain why God chose to love us. All we can do is humbly receive and uh, receive that love, rather, learn to rest in it and reflect it out to a world around us that is in as much need of it as we are. For the third point, Jesus' invitation to us, we'll look at that briefly in a moment as we take the elements in the Lord's Supper. And so let me pray. Lord, it is a confounding mystery to us uh, on the first hand that we are as bad as we really are. Uh, We don't think we are, Lord. And so we, we thank you, we praise you for your patience. We thank you, Lord, for your long-suffering nature, that you would choose to endure with us for millennia, that you would choose to be our God and to send your Son, your only Son, to be our Savior, even though we confess that we don't want to be saved. Lord, I, I pray that you would show us Uh, how to rest and receive your grace. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.